Dano Segoni, Bojo Kwekwe Tansi. Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And of course, we are broadcasting on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. In Toronto, 106.5. In Ottawa, 95.7. And of course, you can always download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 Element FM or 95.7 Element FM and you can listen anywhere across Canada on your app. And welcome to the show for this morning. I would also like to welcome our guest today. And our guest is Michael Ayton. He's the city, Toronto City Councillor for Ward 11, that's University and Rosedale. And as a councillor, Mike has worked to protect and improve city services that people depend on and uh, to preserve and, and to uh, diverse the character of the city's neighbourhoods, which is interesting. Um, he's been a strong voice for City Council to make Toronto a world leader in the fight against climate change. That's a big one. And uh, he's also championed to build affordable housing investments in arts, culture, and Indigenous issues and reconciliation and better public transit and cycling infrastructure. Now, cycling, that's a, that's a very personal one. As we found out this morning, Mike actually uh, cycled down here today. So we're going to talk to him a little bit about that. Um, he's also been involved with a number of initiatives, uh, the Toronto's Home Energy Loan Program, funding uh, energy efficiency and renewable energy projects. Now, that's interesting because, Mike, before uh, he actually uh, uh, joined council, uh, Mike worked at the environmental, at environmental defense. Uh, so that, that's, that's interesting. I want to talk to you a little bit about that, Mike, but I want to welcome you to the show today. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, David. So... Uh, Mike, tell us, uh, how long have you been a councillor? I was elected in November 2010, so it's uh, coming on about eight years. And what have you uh, learned over that time? Wow. Well, I've learned uh, a couple things. One, that my uh, my wife is very, very patient with me. <laughs> okay. uh, I've also had two kids at the, in that time. Okay, and, congratulations. Uh, and thank you very much. Um, the uh, you, you know, I have found that... Like one of the ma- one of the major lessons has been the greatest policy idea you can have doesn't mean anything unless you have a community to back it up unless you you are coming and demonstrating uh, political power by uh, by 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 showing where the roots of that support lie and so for things like the home energy loan program we spent a year just demonstrating that there was support from the business community, from the environmental community, uh, and as well as uh, from, uh, fr- from other segments of, uh, of Toronto uh, society. And it, far too often, someone will walk into my office and have a great idea, and, and I'll say, I want to take that forward with you. But first, got to go out and you got to sell it to the public because I can't show up at city council with a great policy idea and nothing else. And it really, I think, demonstrates that, that the roots of power on the municipal level level are grassroots like this is where we gain power and it's 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 far easier to mobilize and the municipal level which is what makes it so exciting and how we can actually get more done at the municipal level of government than at other levels of government how does that voice at the municipal level affect levels up the ladder you know, if you look at the provincial or the federal level. Well, you know, I think municipalities have often been leaders on on issues. Uh, if it was the um, the AIDS epidemic of the 80s in Toronto or uh, the city of Hudson, Quebec, in, mm. in fact, was the first to put through a, a cosmetic pesticides ban. And it was sh- on shaky ground 
uh, mind you, on very shaky ground that a municipality could say uh, could could pretty much ban the use of cosmetic pesticides. But that led to a provincial wide ban and many more across mm. the country over time. And I think part of it is uh, we're we're far c- closer to where decisions are made uh, on the community level. We're like we're we're. The community, we, we meet regularly with our community associations, with our business improvement areas. Uh, we meet regularly on any range of topic. And it's just far more a far more accessible and direct relationship between elected officials and the community that they serve. And I so, I, I, so I think it means that it's easier to mobilize support uh, and, in fact, um, easier for experts or just really uh, interesting people and ideas uh, to, to to move forward uh, is on the municipal level. And it's not just in Canada and or in Toronto, Ontario, and, and, and Ottawa. Um, it's across North America that municipalities are leading the way to fight cli- fight climate change, mm. leading the way to fight racism uh, in our in our in our cities and uh, in our in our countries, and leading the way uh, to to provide social services to the, those most in need. Uh, that is really um, we're the ones driving other levels of government to really take action. I think we have a, a bit of an example of that, even maybe on uh, the, the the somewhat international. When you hear about the United States pulling out of uh, the Climate Accord, and and you hear about cities, and you hear about uh, uh, states that are saying we're going ahead with this anyway, and we're going to continue to work with with people on this stuff. You hear about those. Well, I wish our province was doing the same. Unfortunately, mm. we may they're one of the actors that are <laughs> withdrawing from the generally conceived mm. doctrine that we should put a price on carbon. Right. Uh, but you're right; it's then municipalities stepping in right. to fill that void and to fill that leadership. Um, and we're, we're actually the ones that are going to be really impacted by climate change mm. uh, because of our infrastructure. Because mm. we we rebuild the roads when they when they erode away. Uh, we need to manage that stormwater coming off all of those concrete surfaces uh, with a, as a result of more intense uh, and, and 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 the frequency of intense rainstorms. Uh, so we're the ones that actually will pay for climate change. And so it's no surprise that we're the ones that are saying you got to deal with it now. So how does the relationship work on, on things like that? When you you have these issues and you say, you know, we deal with it at, at the municipal level, when, when, how do you then approach, the, you know, the, 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 whether it be provincial or federal government to say, look, you know, we're dealing with this, this we're, we're, we're holding this. Uh, when do you guys step in? When do you, when do you, you know, contribute here? Well, I think p- part of it is we, we just ask. Uh, and so we make it an issue. We mm. there, there's far more coverage of a city like Ottawa and Toronto in the media than than there even is mm-hmm. for some provincial issues mm-hmm. in, in this province. We just have the level of coverage and the platform to make a statement. And so we do some of that uh, mm. through um, uh, through through policy and formal requests to other levels of government. Uh, but then there's also the notion that we can we can prove a concept. We can take an issue like the home energy loan program or other issues, and we can prove it on the ground in one mm-hmm. in one location in Toronto or Ottawa or anywhere in Ontario, any municipality that can be scaled up. We got a great organization called the Atmospheric Fund in Toronto, formerly the Toronto Atmospheric Fund, but now it represents the. It, it's actually it's it's the area it covers is far greater, includes uh, Hamilton and the surrounding areas of uh, the uh, the the GTA. Mm. And what it does is it takes an endowment of money that that we raised and then the, then the province just a couple of years ago matched to invest in climate ideas, invest in and, and, and make grants for 
things that are going to reduce our greenhouse gas consumption on the, on that regional level. First, it was the municipality of Toronto. Now it's on the regional level. And those are ideas that we hope to scale up. Mm. We don't only hope that other governments take notice. We actually hope the private sector takes notice. Right. We've been running uh, loan programs for tall buildings, for condominiums now for many, many years, where we do deep retrofits. We guarantee a rate of return uh, on those retrofits. We bankroll it. And then the, the, we convince the condominium to make that investment. They pay us back through their energy savings that have been guaranteed by an engineering firm. And then now we see that we can spin off those investments and other people, other portfolios that want to be green, want to provide green investment, they'll take them on because they're a great rate of return. And so we've now proven this concept that the private sector is in fact now saying, wait a second, what they're doing down in the city of Toronto in the, G- in, in the GTHA, that's really, that's, that's a good model. Let's do it over here. And so it, we're at the point where staff from the Atmospheric Fund, they'll go and fly to other cities mm. around the world and tell them about what we're doing right. here. Now, that's the type of leadership that I think uh, cities can can demonstrate right. and that other governments can take on, which part of it, the, the Atmospheric Fund existed for 24 years at, from an investment the city of Toronto made of $20 million. And then in its on its 25th anniversary, the province took notice and say, hey, wait a second, we're going to give you another $20 million so that you can do this on a grander scale. Mm. And we've been, uh, that, that work continues. And we hope, um, uh, we hope to scale it up even more so it can be across the country. I'm glad you mentioned the, the idea of, of uh, uh, cities going to other municipalities and, and speaking and, and having relationships with, with them and uh, how they can, they can look. Is that, is that something that happens often within municipalities? Well, there is. I, I, I've just recently left, uh, left the board, but I was a member of the Toronto, um, of sorry, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities uh, for the last seven years. And this is members of council and senior city staff across the country. They get to get both a large municipality and very, very small. And they get together and talk about important issues that they face in, in their communities and about a common message we need to send to Ottawa. Uh, we don't talk about provincial issues as much, but what's that common message we need to send to Ottawa to address things like climate change, like uh, like infrastructure and roads, like telecom- mm. telecommunication services? W- we need an advocate in Ottawa. We have it through um, our association. Uh, now, individual relationships, I think, are far less common, but a lot of them are relationships that I've made at uh, at FCM, at this Federation of Canadian Municipalities, that now I can call up a member of council across the country and r- municipalities large and small and say, hey, remember we shared shared dinner at that event or we sat around a conference table at that event. Uh, we Can we talk about this other, this other issue? Mm. And then there's been some issues that we've been able to get national efforts behind uh, just because of some of those personal relationships that we've been able to make uh, when you're meeting people and mm. leaders from other cities. Mm. Um, so one of those things that we, we talked about at the, um, at the municipal level, uh, you rode your bike down here today. I did. Um, so cycling is a, is a big issue that, that in, in every city, I think. Uh, and there are cyclists, more and more cyclists, uh, we see on the roads all the time. Uh, we were talking about some of the issues surrounding safety with cycles and, and, uh, and automobiles and, and those kind of things. And I'm sure this is right across the country for, for cyclists. Um, especially riding in inclement weather, there, there's concerns. But uh, as, as you were uh, uh, rightfully pointing out, uh, cyclists can be uh, can 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 put little spikes in their their their, uh, their tires, so that then winterize their vehicle to some degree, right? With deeper treads and those kind of things. Bigger wheels are now out um, that that help in that way. 
But uh, the relationship between automobile and cyclists and, and safety, uh, awareness, I think, is, is something we were talking about in, in that regard to, to help uh, keep everybody safe on the roads. Uh, and we were talking about how um, there's probably a need for greater, greater education in terms of awareness, maybe on both levels, maybe it's from both automobile as well as, as cyclists, uh, to, to keep people safe. Well, you see, I, first, I grew up on the back of a bike mm-hmm. in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Before there were bike lanes, I think the only bike lane <laughs> you, you've got right out here is the Martin Goodman Trail. Mm. Uh, and so I, I felt quite comfortable growing right. up. Uh, and then when, when I became an adult, not owning a car and, and just, riding, mm-hmm. just riding a bike. Uh, I just think, for, I, I do it for a number of reasons. One is I don't need a car for my work. Right. Uh, and if I did, there, this might be a very different conversation. Sure. Uh, however, uh, my partner comes from rural Ontario. And she, uh, she, she doesn't love being on a bike in the big city. Mm-hmm. She likes cycling, mm-hmm. doesn't love biking through traffic. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people out there. Consistently what we see and what we hear from polling is that more people would choose to bike if there was safe infrastructure. Sure. So first we have the issue of building safe in- infrastructure and maintaining it. Mm-hmm. So making sure it's cleared of snow and ice in the wintertime, or at least when we can, um, and, uh, and, and it's protected enough that there's not people parking in it. Mm. So there's, there, there's one piece there that we need to resolve in order to make people feel more comfortable getting out of the road. And it's not going to be for everyone. Mm. So it doesn't mean that it's the only form of transportation we'll have in the city. Right. And so as we build bike lanes, we need to make sure that we're addressing issues of conflicts between bikes and cars as well as bikes and pedestrians. Mm. And so when you look at some of the projects that we have in the city, we've actually in, in in Toronto, we've moved a little bit more slowly around the major major interventions, uh, just trying to ensure that we're proving the concept as we're going mm. along. And so the Bloor Street bike lane, the Richmond Adelaide, Adelaide Street cycle tracks, like these are things that were proposed as pilot projects, uh, but have very quickly become extremely popular. Mm. And one is because it's getting really difficult to move around the city, mm. whether you're in a car or you're. Uh, or you're on public transit, mm-hmm. it's getting really busy. And it's good that we're building dense urban core in the city. Like that's, that's what we should be doing to protect the area around the city, the, the, the green belt and, 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 and the green spaces that exist outside of the core rather than our city growing through sprawl. But we're going to need to figure out how to get people around. Yeah. And so we really do, if by building safe infrastructure, uh, by, by getting the education right, which is, is I think another piece mm. uh, to all this, is we really need to focus on ensuring that drivers, cyclists, and pedestrians know the rules of the road. And so they're not putting their own lives at risk and, mm-hmm. or worse off, the lives of others. Mm-hmm. And so we need, we need a, a strong campaign to get people to start understanding it, it can't only be about your convenience and the speed that you're getting home. Right. It needs to be about the safety of you, your, you and everyone around you. Mm-hmm. And so we've passed motions in addition to building the infrastructure, to ask other levels of government who have more control over the curriculum of schools to put it in elementary school education and put it in driving uh, driving education. Because in, in my view, you got to hit them early, you got to hit them often. Uh, we've got to ingrain these things. Things like recycling, that didn't, that didn't happen by chance. Mm. It wasn't a, a public education campaign that just had posters up. Right. We got kids to police the household. <laughs> that was an amazing, yeah. an amazing move in the 80s mm-hmm. and early 90s. I was part of that. I was part mm-hmm. of that generation. We were actually, my first protest was down here, just down the road uh, from, from where, where we're sitting right now to close a municipal incinerator and start a recycling program in Toronto. I must have been 
seven or eight years old with my dad. And the the reality is it's it's it, it's going to take a generational shift. Mm. It's going to take that level of commitment uh, and uh, and focusing on the next generation to make that shift possible. Well, I guess the challenge is is the uh, is that generational shift going to be fast enough acting in terms of preventing our downfall as a as a society and as a world uh, by the amount of pollution and things that we're, we're we are now now creating. Well, we put ourselves in this position now, and yeah. and and certainly I hope that it's uh, it's our generation that that sets the table for the next one to to really make the big uh, the big move that we need. Mm-hmm. We need to start that. Um, so I'd like to I'd like to talk to you a little bit about a, a recent victory you had that uh, apparently was a number. Actually, before I go there, I just wanted to mention as as you were talking, I was thinking about um, and you were talking about getting around safely. Ottawa has a great system set up, of course, that helps maneuver vehicles around because they have their bus system that has basically its own its own its own roads for a bigger area a big area that allows the buses to move around freely. And, and uh, I think that helps a lot in terms of freeing up the roads and, and making it safer for people. Well, certainly everyone wants a subway. Everyone yeah. wants a subway to their front door. But the reality <laughs> is, A, it's unaffordable. Uh, and, and B, there's huge carbon invested in a subway that mm. I, we don't talk about often because mm. everyone thinks it's, it's, all, it's all sunshine and roses when it comes to public transit and subways. Mm. But in reality, the carbon footprint of a subway is so much more than, uh, than the footprint of other means of transportation. But you, and, and you, why is that? Well, it's just the amount of concrete that goes into pouring, uh, the, the amount okay. of work that goes into creating gotcha. it. Sure. Um, you can move lots of people in it. Yep. So in some cases, it might balance out as yeah, over a good time, investment yeah. okay. over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're not functioning at that level of capacity right. for even the first week, you've got, you, you're right. making a carbon and uh, an investment in carbon that might not pay itself off. In the right. end. Um, so if you look at surface rail, there's immediately a huge de- decrease in the amount of carbon that, that goes into it. Mm. And, and often we... We overlook, or maybe maybe we neglect the the workhorse of our transit fleet, and that's the bus system, mm. right? Like buses can go places that 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 other vehicles can't. Mm. Um, they can make short turns. They can be activated immediately. Right. They can avoid uh, avoid accidents. Like there's a lot can be said about mm. a good functional bus network. Mm. And we're probably going to have to make more investments in buses over the next over the coming years. Of course, uh, ones with alternative fuel sources, we're mm. already moving in that direction. Right. Uh, but we, we're going to need to make those investments uh, in, in, in those pieces of infrastructure because you can't build other forms of public transit fast enough. Right. Um, what about streetcars? How are they efficient? Are they as, just as bad as creating that carbon? Uh, you you know, I haven't seen a, 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 a comparison of um, streetcars to, to buses as, mm. as far as a climate footprint. It's probably pretty favorable or was really favorable because of the fuel mm. uh, that went into mm. uh, moving them around, uh, streetcars being electric. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the comparison is probably pretty favorable too compared to uh, subway, uh, underground tunneling. Mm. Uh, when you start building longer uh, streetcars mm. uh, with these LRTs that yep. will have functional on Eglinton soon uh, that are in a, a public right-of-way so that there's not a lot of starting and stopping, um, the, I think you'll probably find that they're, they're probably a pretty good investment uh, from both a financial point of view as well as a, a, a greenhouse gas point of view uh, simply because um, their, their fuel sources is, is fairly beneficial. And yeah. there's not a lot that takes 
Not a lot goes into mm. building the infrastructure that they need to get around the city. The tracks right. sure and need to be replaced and 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 fixed. But by comparison to to subways, I think there's a a pretty big difference. Right. Okay. Well, uh, we do have to take a pause uh, and take this break, but we will be right back on Moment of Truth and Element FM speaking with uh, uh, Mike Layton, Councillor for Toronto. We are back on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Our guest today is Toronto City Councillor Mike Layton. He is a Ward 11 for University in Rosedale. We're talking about Municipal issues. We're also talking about pollution. Pollution, of course, isn't a, isn't a, a, a municipal issue, but it's one that affects all of us. You know, uh, as you were talking earlier, Mike, uh, I was thinking about uh, you were you were saying how we we need to mobilize and and get support for things to to get them activated at the municipal level. And we were talking about how that that sort of trickles up the ladder. That municipalities can sometimes be the the catalyst for getting other things going. And you know. The one thing that keeps coming back to me about any any issue that that is affecting us on a global scale, whether it be a municipal party or whether it be provincial or whether it's a federal uh, uh, person who brings this forward, if it's something that uh, that is of benefit, um, when there's pushback, I, I sometimes scratch my head because we always we, I, I think we we sometimes use. Our, our, our associations as a means of, of deflecting things. And what I mean by that is we are all human beings. We are all human beings. We all breathe. We all need water. We need safe places to live. And yet, you know, uh, we, we, if we say it's, oh, it's a federal issue, it, it kind of deflects it away from the fact that we, it, we're all human. Don't these people live in cities? Don't they all live in homes? Don't they, aren't they affected by the same things we are all affected by? Um, do you know what I'm saying when I when I say that? No, I think I I think I get you. It's I I've often brought forward policy that I thought you know this is a no brainer. Mm. Like this this affects all of you, all of mm. your your kids, mm. your grandkids. Why would you vote against this? Right. And then I, like they're they're. They, they'll start scratching their heads and they'll come up with kind of a half-baked reason mm. why. And I, I think they've missed this association that I've made in my brain mm. as there, there's just no way I could go home and explain to my kids why I didn't vote for this mm. and therefore why, why couldn't they. And I'm sure, right. I'm sure they, may see, like, they may see the world just through a different set of eyes mm. and they may see the facts differently than I do. And I, I accept that. And that's why uh, I think for me, at least the, that lesson I spoke of earlier, is about you need to demonstrate that you're, you're not only, it's not only my idea. This is something that, that generally speaking, the public are mm. and, and constituencies that they may respect uh, are supportive of. Another great, another great example was around, um, around the proposal for, uh, for a casino in downtown Toronto. Mm. Um, we brought faith leaders in who, if if I couldn't convince them from some arguments that uh, that that the particular location was was a poor idea or that it was a, mm. not a great idea in Toronto, um, there was a, a like we we presented the faith communities mm. that came in and mm-hmm. and re- the 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 group we had represented every faith community. Mm. We had a press release release in twelve different languages, mm-hmm. and that that demonstrated, I think, to many on council who perhaps have uh, don't exist in the same political space that I do on the (laughs) spectrum um, that that said, you know what, it's it's not just a political argument. This isn't a left versus right argument. 
There's a lot in the middle here. Mm. And so that was one, uh, I think, one other example of just uh, where you you can mobilize communities that aren't traditional communities but are sympathetic. Mm. And if you can do that effectively on the Home Energy Loan Program, I got the utilities mm. uh, behind it. I got uh, Enbridge and, um, and Toronto Hydro to, to write supportive letters of the policy that I was proposing. And so all together... No one could oppose it because you had the banks, you had the, the, the utilities, you had the environmental groups, you had traditional labor organizations. Mm. And that really represents the spectrum of political ideals right. uh, in, in our city. And once you, can, once you can do that, there's really not much you can do if you can mobilize a big enough right. force. Right. So something else you were successful with uh, over time was uh, uh, getting through a, a motion to, uh, to have industrial wastewater polluters uh, pay the full cost of, of treating the water for the city. Do you, you want to tell us what, what, why that what took six years? of you? It was, I think, eight years eight in total. Years. Okay. Uh, but it goes back about 10 years when our auditor general wrote a report that said, did you know that you're giving polluters a subsidy mm. and because you're not charging them the full cost to clean up their, their right. affluent right. Um, or you're not, you're not charging them as much as you should be uh, to clean up their affluent. And so a couple of years later, uh, the general manager of Toronto Water proposed a policy to the city that said, mm. make them make them pay for all of the different chemicals, not just the one they pollute the most, which mm. was the, the case then. And so um, it failed when it first got put through. And then I started bringing it up during the budget process every year after that and slowly started chipping away at the votes. I, I think I, I law I, I lost by 30 votes the first time, and it went all the way to last year. I lost on a tie. And right. so it, it it slowly moved over time. Uh, and really, it was there, there was a handful of lobbyists that represented the industries that were going to get most effective. And it wasn't a lot of money. For in, in the grander scheme of the Toronto mm. $13 billion budget, we're mm. talking about $1.2 But it was the principle of it. Mm. And I didn't take the money and try to put it into another program. It was always just about making sure the cost to clean up their waste was not borne by every other business in the city and every every water consumer in the city, mm. that it was in fact reflected in their bills because hopefully that'll make them change their their business model. Maybe they'll treat it on site. Maybe they'll use different uh, uh, different ingredients and in whatever it is they were making mm. uh, to, 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 to reduce mm. their pollution. And you know, I think it... It can be extended to other things sure. that we don't think about. Stormwater is, mm. I think, an important one. Mm. Right now, we have paved over so much of uh, of southern Ontario. <laughs> the amount of stormwater that we're creating is wreaking havoc not only on our infrastructure, right. like the ravines here yeah. in, in Toronto, I'm sure it's the same everywhere, are just being eaten away by sure. the amount of runoff we're getting from parking parking lots further north. And, and that's collecting pollution, getting into our waterways, and so it's costing the municipality money, but then it's all costing all of us personally too, as our basements get flooded. Mm. And we wonder mm. why we wonder why we're having more basement flooding now <laughs> than we were a decade ago right. or twenty years ago, right. because we've paved over the headwaters. Right. And so we need we we need to take this notion of um, of externalizing your environmental impacts and and get it get them internalized into the cost of doing business, because you know that's going to make that parking lot operator mm. think twice before they just pour concrete right. and 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 try to try to capture all that water, put it in a pipe, and send it down to Lake Ontario. Mm. It's going to make them think twice. Mm. And so, hopefully, 
uh, this is just the next step in a logical sort of making sure people pay for their for their pollution, their impacts on the environment that that hopefully will lead to greenhouse gases mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 actually starting to put a price on uh, on the decisions we make uh, because unfortunately I don't think we're all going to make it uh, for altruistic reasons. Right. We're going to make the shift that we need to make. Uh, we're going to need the market to help move us in that direction. And that is that is despite what our premier says, despite what. Um, uh, what what uh, Shear says in, in Ottawa, that is what the role of government is. We need to ensure public health by regulating industry uh, and reducing the impacts on the environment. Uh, just a point of clarification. You, you said 1.2 for the budget. Is it 1.2 or 2.1? It's 1.2 okay. million. Okay. Um, and also, when you say that about runoff and, and those kind of things, the other thing I remember hearing, and, and this is something I, I've thought about in the past as well, um, there was something raised uh, just a little while ago about the amount of salt we put on the roads. And, you know, that that is corrosive. Uh, that's, that's one. But, but two, that also gets into the waters. And that's affecting um, plant life and, 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 and life itself and, and, and changing the way, uh, the way our environment is, is also uh, moving forward with us, right? I think this is where, this, is where this web of decision-making gets so complex and that mm-hmm. we've got one policy um, – around protecting the environment mm. and reducing our salt use. And we do have a salt management plan. It looks like we just shovel it out there uh, and 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 have a, a general disregard for mm. where it ends up in the end. We do have a salt management plan in, in Toronto, at least. Um, but then if while we're managing the level of salt, we've also got to manage our requirements under the AODA the ex- around accessibility. Mm. Um, this is ensuring that people can, can navigate around our city. You know, I've got I've got a little girl at home, two little girls, but was pushing one in a stroller right after the the uh, one of the snowstorms in January, and it was just impossible to get down the road. Mm. Like this was four days after the snow came down, yeah. and there were sidewalks on major streets in our city mm. that were were two, were a foot and a half of ice, mm. and that I, I at one point had to pick up the stroller mm. and just walk it about yeah. half a block. Sure, and uh, and so I I think. We need to look at other solutions. There are other things out there that can help. We need to ensure that we're doing everything we can before we start look to, looking to solutions that, uh, that, that hurt the environment. The, uh, the little sidewalk plows that they have out um, that, that help a lot in that regard, is there enough of them? They're putting more and more out, I guess, to, to help with the sidewalk? Well, we are looking, and there is a review going on right now. I tried to include some of it in the in the budget because we don't plow all the sidewalks the right. same in the city. Yep. Um, we plow major street sidewalks and we plow sidewalks in everywhere else but the old city of Toronto. And this is a legacy of um, uh, of the, the, the amalgamation mm. of the municipalities. And that is one level of service we don't quite have downtown, despite the fact that we have more more people walking mm. uh, on those same sidewalks. Mm. Uh, part of it is technical. It's, it's difficult to cl- like. There's there's far more incursions into mm. uh, the the city's right of way. A lot of right. people putting stuff on their lawn, mm. building retaining walls, mm. putting planting, um, and then there's also street parking, which right. is a bit of a problem. There's not sure. a lot of places to put this to put the snow, and we're not always going to be able to get everything mechanically cleared for us. Mm. Um, there it, there will always be that that need. For for the slogan, be kind, yeah. be nice, clear your eyes. Right, of course. Um, there, but like we should make sure that we're we're using those uh, those mechanical me- methods as much much as we can. 
um, because like it, it really does get us to a standard that everyone can uh, uh, that can get around our city. And so if you yeah, got that neighbor down your street that just won't clear, right. um, this will make sure that it, that yeah. at least it gets a once over right. in the really busy snowstorms. Yeah. Um, the problem though, it, it gets back to your, your, your comment about salt. Um, a lot of what the city will probably have to do is preventative. And that'll mean putting salt down in far larger quantities than what we want uh, mm. from an environmental point of view. So there's a trade-off there that it might be more convenient if the city goes by and piles it then 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 puts an inch of salt down uh might be more convenient than you going out and waking up and having to go out for 20 minutes and shovel shovel your sidewalk uh but there are environmental benefits to that yeah absolutely so let's talk about um we talked about this uh this budget congratulations on that finally getting that through thank you um and and I guess uh, there was a few comments around that about uh, some jokes being raised that you you finally got this this done as well after. But uh, you know, I, I guess my question is why the resistance? Well, it was a handful of councillors, uh, a handful of lobbyists that uh, that were really effective at representing the businesses that they do. These mm. large, like we're talking, a handful of large manufacturers mm. that were able to convince uh, some councillors that these businesses would leave Toronto. If they, uh, if if we if we added uh, if we made them pay for the full cost of pollution, one year uh, we asked for commissioned a study, probably spent a hundred thousand dollars on the study, commissioned a study to say how competitive are we when you put all of our utility and taxes together, mm. and so we did, and you know what, we performed very very well compared to other municipalities in the GTA, and compared to actually other municipalities across Canada and across North America. Mm. When you compare the cost, when you add up the cost of taxes property taxes, the cost of uh, utilities, when you add in the, uh, all the other costs that, uh, that are factored in, we actually do extremely well. And so I had to put it back to, the, uh, to council every year after that and said, you can't say that these businesses are going to leave and that this will make <laughs> us not competitive mm. because we're already extremely competitive and this right. isn't a lot of money. Right, right. Uh, speaking of uh, taxes, um, there's there's going to be a slight increase, I understand, in people's taxes. There is. I, in fact, voted for a greater increase. Mm. And I'll explain it, I, I'll sure. explain it to you this way. It, we have been through now, in, in my time at least, eight years, and this will be the ninth, nine years of either 0% increases or increases at the rate of inflation. And unfortunately, um, our, our costs are going up greater than the rate of inflation. Our state of good repair... Um, so the the backlog of state of good repair has increased. So we're we're worse off now than we than we were at the beginning of the uh, of the eight years, and uh, and that's not a good place to be. I don't want to pass these problems on to mm. the next city council. Right. I think that we we have a duty as being good financial stewards, uh, as well as environmental ones, but financial stewards to leave the books a little bit better off. Mm. And un- unfortunately, we're not w- willing. To, and or fortunately, I don't. I don't think we deserve less service. I think we should improve our city services. Mm. And to do that, we're going to need to pay for it. Right. And so I both I, I propose propo- proposed a higher tax rate to limit the impact uh, and 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 eliminate the need for a fair increase on public transit. And then I moved a, a, a motion because that was voted down to implement a vehicle rest- registration fee, which we used to have as a city. Right. The prov- right. It's the only other way we have mm. really of raising revenue the municipal land transfer tax which we also levy uh, yeah. that that 
has and I now heard that seen, that has gone down. That, and that has was part of the decline, yeah. and we're depending more on that than we ever have before. Hmm. Uh, that's declined, and 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 looks like it's going to keep going down. So we need to find, we need to find revenue in order to 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 invest in our city, invest in both uh, the programs that make uh, that build people up and make it a great city, uh, but but also that that infrastructure that's crumbling, and we see it we see it constantly. Uh, we've got to spend hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, rebuilding the Gardner mm. Expressway, uh, we have no money to build the the, the much needed downtown relief subway line. Zero. Like we're spending, sure, a couple hundred million on planning it. But we don't have the four, five, maybe six billion dollars we'll need to build it, and we have no space to borrow it. So if we don't start raising revenue now, uh, we're we're not going to be able to make the investments that will bring uh, this city forward in the future. And mm. I'm really worried about that uh, because I don't want to just. Hand o- abdicate my responsibility and hand it over to the next city council and leave them in a worse place. Mm. Um, we have to take a break in a couple of minutes, but but before we do that, and I want to get, get move on to a couple of other things. Um, <clears throat> is there anything else you can think of that's that's pertinent to mention about uh, what's happening right now at city council or something that's coming up down the pipes that people should be aware of? Well, I think one uh, one one very interesting point that I've been involved with since since 2011 is uh, the the new Indigenous Affairs Office. Yeah. We, uh, as part of last year's budget, um, allocated about half a million dollars to hiring more staff and uh, to to create an office that would um, advance our priorities as a city uh, that we have in 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 the space of uh, of Indigenous issues, uh, and as well as to Figure out a way to to break down the silos that we form uh, in in institutions like a, a large corporate municipality. And so, figuring out what um, it, it's been, it's taken a little while to figure out how that would work. But mm. now that 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 um, that office has staffed up, they have a have a have their full staff complement or almost full staff complement in place. It's really exciting to see where we could make progress on things like Aboriginal employment in the city of Toronto, which we've had a strategy for for a couple years, um, but but we really haven't haven't done and achieved all that we wanted to uh, about forming partnerships with uh, organizations serving Indigenous people in the city. Uh, I meet with them regularly as part of the Aboriginal Affairs Committee, uh, but but have we we haven't sort of knit together their objectives as organizations our power as a city and our ability to support them. And then finally, um, achieving our um, the, the calls to action under the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, th- this was a commitment the city has made. Uh, we've only made small progress on, uh, but, but we fought, fought year over year to get this office formed so that they can, uh, that team can start ensuring that we're meeting our, our objectives uh, under, uh, under all of those areas. So you mentioned the two things I wanted to to talk about as we came back off the break, but that's okay. You gave us this this introduction to them, um, and and what I'd really like to find out a little bit more about is uh, it seemed to have taken a little bit of uh, time to get that office up and running. There it seemed to be you know fall into hiatus or something there. Or, I'm not sure what happened, but uh, they finally got the money. They got it moving forward. Um, and I'd like to to give a little, if you can get a little bit more background on that. Um, I know you're involved with the the uh, Indigenous or Aboriginal Committee. I'd like to find out your work on that and how that works uh, with the, with the City Council as well. Um, but we do need to take a break, and it looks like it's a good time to do that. So we will be right back on Moment of Truth and Element FM right after this. 
And we're back on Moment of Truth and Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to 106.5 in Toronto and 95.7 in Ottawa. And, of course, don't forget, you can also listen on the Radio Canada app and just download that app and type in Element FM 106.5 or 95.7, and you can listen anywhere across Canada. And our guest today is Mike Layton, City Councillor for Toronto for Ward 11 and University in Rosedale. And just before the break, we were talking to him about a couple of things. Uh, first of all, he does serve on the uh, the Indigenous, uh, the word is Indigenous, but you, you're calling it the Aboriginal Committee. Um, and you've been serving on that, that since about 2014, I believe? Since 2011. Okay. Uh, so what happened was when um, Mayor Ford, in 2000 and after being elected in 2011, he um, he said we're going to cut all of our citizen advisory panels, every single one. Mm. Then uh, he thought, on a second thought, let's reinstate the film board because they give us advice about an industry. Really didn't care about any of the other ones that mm. were there. There were a couple that were very close to my heart. One was the cycling advisory committee that never went anywhere after that. And the other one was the uh, what was then called the Aboriginal Affairs Committee. And so what what happened was we said, well, wait a second. Like, this is a responsibility of our government to, to do this. And we made speeches, didn't seem to go anywhere. And someone came up with, a, with the argument that don't we have a legal requirement to? I'm not sure the city does. I, I'd like to hope they do, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not sure that there is such a function, but we said it anyhow. And, <laughs> uh, and as it turned out, the threat of that was enough <laughs> Uh, to reconstitute the committee. And we, um, I, I, to the life of me, uh, still don't know why um, Mayor, Mayor Ford made me uh, or, or put me on the committee. Um, I'm the only city councillor that was on it for, the fir- mm. for those four years. Um, but I, like, if there's anything I'd like to thank him for, it's that. Uh, it allowed me to, um, uh, to, to work with Toronto's Indigenous community uh, the the or the, typically the, the committee was made up of executive directors or alternates for organization indigenous organizations run run by indigenous people serving the indigenous community and so just in the Toronto area mm. uh, it also included a representative of um, uh, of uh, the Mississaugas of the Credit and so we we met um, regularly uh, for for four years in that first term of council where we were tasked with helping um, put some action plans together around something called the Statement of Commitment to Aboriginal People, which Mm. was passed in 2010 before the election. Uh, So there were these very vague goals, um, and we were supposed to try to make them actionable in some way. Um, So things like increasing the number of Indigenous people working for the city of Toronto. We didn't even know how many did. Mm. And so we then had to go through a process of determining uh, how, how do we determine right. how many uh, people who identify as Indigenous are working right. for the city of Toronto, and then how do we how do we increase that number? Right. Uh, and we've done we've done half decently in 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 that regard. We're still not where we need to be, but we have increased that number. We found it out what it was, and then increased it. It's quite uh, low. I understand it, about it was, eight. It was very low, uh, and, and and I'm I'm sure the number is not what we would like to see. Uh, but but it's moving, and mm. I think that that's the big um, mm. that that's the driver here. Are we right. moving on some of these issues? We declared um, the year of truth and reconciliation uh, just after Vancouver did. Um, this was in two thousand and 
2013, 2014, kind of overlap two years, um, and then uh, took on the, the, the calls to, to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission mm-hmm. when they were published. Um, not all of them have to do with municipalities, uh, but there are, and there are several that do. Things like investing in sport. We, we, were, um, uh, we were part of ensuring that the Indigenous Games that were hosted in Toronto were a success by offering up our facilities, some expertise, and the like. We've worked with, um, uh, with, with organizations around service to, to, to uh, in Indigenous people living in Toronto so that they have um, specific services that are, are, are geared to and, and, and catered to um, needs of, of, of a variety of different sub-communities within the Indigenous community as a whole. Uh, we've also uh, worked with, um, wi- with Council Fire around mm. this uh, the structure that would be at uh, Nathan Phillips Square, right. um, recognizing uh, the um, recognizing the residential schools and uh, and 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 the people and so survivors that uh, uh, that are still that are still living in 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 the city. And so we we did make some progress. I, I got to thank um, Mayor Mayor Tory because he in 2014. Um, allowed me to continue my participation uh, on the committee, and you're, you're a, a co-chair or a co on it, that. Committee. It start. It started off as I, I was appointed chair by council. I found it pretty rich that the city of Toronto, which is predominantly um, white mm. Anglo's, uh, would be uh, would be so presumptuous as to appoint the chair. And so what we did was we went back and changed the bylaws so that it was uh, the committee appointed co-chairs mm. and i've served as a co-chair uh with um w- with members of the indigenous community mm. uh for uh for the past 5 years yeah. um i hope to continue that role um there there's so much exciting stuff going on around indigenous business uh, uh districts around the uh, indigenous affairs office uh around uh movement on the file with uh, with council fire uh, towards the actual building of this structure, mm. um, we have celebrated its potential. We have a right. space for it right in yeah. front of city hall. Uh, it will be gorgeous. We just need to figure out how to fund the project now, right. um, which we should be able to get there. But I want to be a part of that. It's it's something that has hit close to home uh, for me and been one of my sources of great pride and uh, and joy in my work at city council. What would you say your knowledge of Indigenous issues or Indigenous people or or, or the like uh, was prior to getting into this position? Um, prior to, I, w- I would have said it was quite low. I had worked when I was at in- Environmental Defense. I had worked a, a, a little bit with um, some organizations out in Sarnia around uh, chemical exposure as well as some work with um, organizations in the north around renewable energy projects. Mm. And uh, trying to get in, in indigenous people involved in the employment side and mm. investment side mm. of these large uh, large scale renewable projects, um, but I would have said my my intimate knowledge would have been would have been quite low um, through uh, the the city's exploration in uh, in truth and reconciliation as well as simply um, participating in um, the number of uh, indigenous events that I've had the the, the privilege. Uh, of participating in and the conversations I've had to have, I think that that's increased. Um, but I certainly wouldn't say that uh, it's 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 well formed. I would like to keep doing uh, keep doing this work so that I can learn more, um, and not just sitting in a, in in a classroom 
Um, I, I really enjoy working with the partners that we have from indigenous organizations. And as I learn about um, the, the, the uniqueness of, uh, of, of these uh, communities, also uh, how can we make a difference in people's lives? Mm. Um, how would you say that the rest of council is in terms of their, their own knowledge of these issues? Well, one thing that we successfully passed last year was an allocation in the budget to do Indigenous cultural competency training. Mm. Um, that has uh, been rolling out over uh, for, to senior city staff. So these are like the top decision makers in the city uh, are all uh, required to take it. Um, mm. and city councilor's office, we, we can't require them to, but we can... Um, we can encourage them to. It's a new term of council, so they haven't rolled out mm. the uh, this this work yet um, in uh, in the new term. Uh, but it's certainly something that I will encourage not only new councillors to do, but also all new staff. Um, we have some new staff in my office. I'll, I'll be supportive of them undertaking this training, um, I, and we we will do it as as a community uh, within my office to ensure that uh, um, that our the decisions that we make are uh, are, are mindful. Of, uh, of of where we where we come from, the land mm-hmm. we live on, and 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 how it came to be this way. Uh, you're working with the the environment. Uh, there's a there's a co-relationship there, definitely, with the indigenous population and with uh, with issues that that affect indigenous people. Yes, I uh, certainly, and and not only in uh, rural communities in 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 throughout Canada, but in in, in Ontario, in in this case. Uh, but but within Toronto itself, uh, like it, it's the environmental degradation and our loss of uh, of of the natural environment in Toronto have a deep deep impact on um, the the indigenous people living in 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 this city, uh, and uh, and it and it should it should be reflective in in more of a deep impact to the rest of us. Do you think people understand uh, the the non-indigenous community that? You know, indigenous knowledge, uh, having lived on these lands for for tens of thousands of years, uh, with without leaving um, uh, a, a, you know a, a, a zero uh, carbon footprint, uh, being green, totally green. Uh, it, it strikes me that people don't necessarily recognize that that there is a great deal of knowledge there to be learned from in terms of how we treat our environment. Well, I think this is where. Uh, it, looking at cultural competency and, and recognizing the expertise of others, we, we we had a long chat about this in our discussion of a uh, of our employment strategy at the city. How how do we actually start recognizing the expertise of mm. Indigenous people because they have different life experience? Mm. Um, the 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 institutions that they may have played a role in, have been leaders in, might not be recognized by. Uh, by by a recruiter, an HR recruiter that has absolutely no background in that, and uh, or as as doesn't have the deep understanding. But we broke that barrier, right? Like we we started to figure out how mm. we could get get past that. Mm. And I think we've actually come up with a good way of doing it by by adding people with indigenous knowledge uh, and and knowledge of indigenous institutions into the hiring process um, to help vet potential candidates and to help interview. Uh, candidates just just by them being there, they may be able to help the other people in the room understand a little bit more um, the the expertise that, that that potential candidates have. So I think it's but it's through that 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 cultural competency, that understanding uh, the the our, our our shared history and the and the deep history Indigenous people have with the land that that will help us get past that. I, I certainly don't think we're there um, yet. I think there's a recognition 
that uh, that a connection exists, but certainly not the level of respect for uh, for for the knowledge mm. that that is our next step. And mm. I think I think we'll get there, um, but it's going to take uh, it's going to take a deeper understanding of all of us over mm. uh, about this connection between uh, uh, between Indigenous people and all of us and 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 the land that we we live on. Mm. Uh, okay, so there's, there's, you know, we're quickly running out of time. We've had a great uh, conversation here, Mike. It's been great having you on the show. I want to talk about uh, what's this, what has your involvement been with the uh, the Indigenous Centre for Innovation and Entrepreneurship that is coming down the pipes as well. So there, I haven't had uh, it, it. It hasn't been a city-led project. The mm-hmm. city has been more of a supportive cast member. Okay. Uh, on city council, there's actually been a great um, a great champion. The uh, councillor Wong Tam has mm, been right. uh, a champion uh, yeah. of that initiative for. For a couple of years, I've I've had had some meetings with the um, uh, with the Miss Sugs of the Credit, mm. as well as with Councillor Wong Tam about how uh, we might, as a city, um, pursue that further. Um, it's kind of one. It, it it wasn't core a core responsibility of the Indigenous um, Affairs Committee, but that that could change uh, if uh, if the city uh, gets more involved and endorses the idea. Um, but but really, that committee and my involvement in that committee has been about how can how can certain city policies uh, be better uh, be, be better reflect our statement of commitments and the calls to action. Okay, um, so Mike, before you leave today, we have a bit of a gift for you. It's something that um, that we we spoke about briefly, and it's something that we have done for other guests that we've had in, into the show. And uh, we talked about uh, the Indigenous Atlas that, uh, that I mentioned to you earlier, and I asked you if you were familiar with it. Um, we would actually like to give you a copy of the four-volume set, which, uh, of course, uh, is, is, in, is in conjunction with Kids Can Press and Canadian Geographic. And uh, Kids Can Press are located right here in our building. We had the pleasure of being involved with them with launching this atlas right here. And we'd like to give you a copy that you could take back to your office and share with your colleagues. And, um, uh, you know, this, this four-volume set is wonderful. And I'll tell you a little bit about it. The Indigenous Peoples Atlas of Canada was created in response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's Call to Actions, which cites the development of culturally appropriate criteria for Indigenous students as a top priority. Lack of uh, appropriate education and financial resources for Canada's Indigenous students has long been deemed a contributing factor to the marginalization of Indigenous communities. Uh, The Indigenous Peoples Atlas of Canada includes a four-volume set, as I mentioned, and there's an online interactive atlas which is accompanying the app. A giant, there's a giant floor map. If you haven't seen this, you can go online and see it. It's a massive, probably about 40-foot square. It fills up an entire room, and you can actually walk right across it. And the interesting thing about this, which I'm sure you'll see in the Atlas as well, is that there are no provincial barriers. All of the provincial barriers have been uh, taken down, and you see Canada as a nation, a turtle island, as it as it's referred to. And you'll see what this country looks like uh, without those those barriers. And you see all the indigenous communities, uh, the territories is is what's put there. And uh, the treaty territories and, and those kind of things. So um, it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful resource, and we'd like to give that to you so you can take it back and learn uh, and share it with your, your people in your office. And I, I hope uh, that you, you put it to good use. Well, thank you so much. It's beautiful. So um, 
yeah, so so there is that. And you, oh, you also have this little map book that I want to give that to you as well. And you can have a look at that. And uh, Mike, I'll give you uh, a chance to just say uh, we're, we're quickly coming to an end again. We want to maybe just go out on a song, uh, one of your choices, by the way. Any last words you'd like to just say uh, before we leave? Well, it's 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 been great talking with you. Thank you so much uh, for this conversation and reflection mm. on uh, just what we're doing as a city. Mm. Uh, but if anything, it just tells me we've got to renew our efforts. Uh, and there's so much work uh, yet to be done. Um, that uh, I, I, it's ex- it's exciting to be a part of, but uh, quite a bit different when you can actually see some of the successes in action, things mm-hmm. like the Indigenous Affairs Office. It's nice to reflect on some of the victories uh, despite uh, some of the difficult, uh, difficult losses that right. we've had. Well, Mike, thanks again for joining us on the show. It's been a pleasure having you here, and I hope you'll come back again. Anytime. Okay, so let's go out with this uh, choice of song by uh, Mike. Is it uh, a, a, by A Tribe Called Red, Stadium Powwow. Thanks for listening. I'm David Moses, your host. Look forward to seeing you here again on Moment of Truth and Element FM.